Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in tech and what do I say? It's politics, politics. tech and pop. It's been a while. I've been gone, gone a little while. I've been gone for two weeks and I, and when Richard did the beep, I was like, what do I say? <laughs> I forgot what I say. Politics, tech and pop culture. So we've been gone for... Two weeks, and there have been lots of polls, and so we're going to shake things up just slightly. Kristen, you're going to talk about it a little bit. And I just got back from being away and, like, really not checking. I mean, I checked email, but I didn't, like, fully immerse myself in all the emails that anyone ever would possibly send me, um, you know, or all the tweets that anybody ever did. So it'll be like kind of when you were not on Twitter for Lent, right? It's going to be sort of I'll like that. I'll catch you up on what has I happened. Did, I did know about bed bugs. I know about bed bugs and I know about like the dog park article that everybody was enjoying in the post. That's like, you know, kind of the basics of where I am. Uh, you've you've hit the the major, <laughs> you've hit the major things. I'm basically caught up, yeah. Uh, the only other thing I can think of, and I'm ch- not sure what the timeline on this was, but have you seen these like deep fake videos where they're switching celebrity faces? Yes. For, yeah. Okay. I saw one of those this morning. Well, if you, I was going to say, if you hadn't seen one yet, buckle in and get ready I'm to totally be caught horrified up. about the future. I'm all caught up then. So this week's top lines... Uh, First, before I dive into what we're going to talk about on this show, I'll just explain how we're going to be doing the show moving forward. So this show has at times gone an hour, which we love talking to you all. We hope that you enjoy listening to us. We want to tighten things up a little bit um, and, and really try to make each episode a bit more structured. So from here on out, we're going to be starting off the show talking political climate 2020, what's going on with the horse race. Um, but then each week, we're going to dive into an issue of the week. Um, polls do not come out about issues every single week, but it's sometimes valuable to be able to go back and when something big is in the news, put it all in context. So each week, whether it's something like the economy, gun control, uh, all sorts of different issues, we're going to pick one. Stronger gun laws. Stronger me. gun laws. I know. As soon as I said it, I was like, oh. It's all right. I, I didn't issue, say stricter. I, I didn't say strict. I, I issue citations all day long. It's fine. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll be focusing in on one particular issue each week. And we won't just be confining ourselves to the polls that have come out that week on that issue, um, but rather trying to give sort of a more holistic view so that the issues that are big and in the news, you've got the full context about where America stands. And then, of course, we are never going to walk away fully from the fun end of show garbage <laughs> poll. So don't worry. That's staying yes. put. Um, the only thing you'll really notice is the show will be a little bit shorter and we'll be focusing in on kind of one big issue this week and accumulating polls going back a little bit further um, and trying to sort of add that context to whatever the news of the day is. So for this week's show, our top lines, we're going to start off talking 2020. The Dem field is shrinking. Is the Biden frontrunner era, is it still reality or is it still just name ID driving the day? We'll talk about Trump's job approval, uh, a little bit about whether these primary challenges to him are real or not, as well as the general election matchups that still look pretty 
ugly for President Trump and what to make of them. Then the issue of the week, we're going to dive into the economy. Consumers are feeling pretty good about the now, but are less upbeat about the future. We'll talk about attitudes toward the economy and whether that could cause Trump trouble next year. And finally, it's back to school time. So we'll talk about spending on back to school supplies. My favorite thing. I just want to go back to school just so I can buy school supplies and saying goodbye to summer. So let's dive in, talk about 2020 first. Um, The Democratic primary, there is the only real change, Marjorie, since you left, and yes. as someone who's doing polling for a 2020 Democratic candidate. <laughs> I've kept up. I have to say, I'm, I'm, assuming I'm exaggerating a little bit. You so have like kept I've up. Not, yeah. <laughs> um, but there has not been a ton of change with the exception of the sort of backslide of Kamala Harris has continued to pace over the last few weeks with her no longer up in that sort of tier two with Warren and Sanders. She has now sort of fallen back down into Pete Buttigieg territory in sort of the mid single digits. Joe Biden's still out in the lead with almost 30 percent, which is kind of where he's been for the last few weeks. Um, Not a ton of change there. And you also have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren each getting about 16 to 17 percent in the polling averages. The big story in 2020 Democratic primary polling from this week was the Monmouth outlier kerfluffle. Right. How much were you paying attention to this story? I did see a little bit of that. I saw a little bit of it. Like it happened yesterday, last two days. So I did see a little bit of it. So to give our listeners some background, the qualifying polls in order to make the cut for the next debate, um, I believe yesterday, I'm saying yesterday. What day is today? Today's Thursday. (laughs) I don't even know what day it is. Question mark? Question mark. (laughs) It is in fact Thursday and this show is in fact going out on Thursday. Yeah. Fact check. True. Great. 100% we are totally across on top the board. Of it. Uh, <laughs> We're doing great at keeping this show really tight, by the way. Wow. Um, <laughs> Should pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> I think we're only like six minutes in. Great. And we, we've, we've not yet talked about a poll. But we talked about it's the happened. averages. It's about it's to okay. happen. Um, so the, the kerfluffle was that there were a certain number of polls, you know, still left to come out that would define who was and wasn't going to make the cut for the next debate. And Monmouth was one of the big polls dropping. And when the Monmouth poll came out, it showed uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders in pretty close. Right. A three way tie, essentially. 19, 20, 20, Biden, Sanders, Warren. Which would have been a really big change from the polling averages. Yes. And it would show like a drop for Biden and a surge for Warren. Yeah, big drop for Biden, small to medium surge for Warren. Right. And so obviously huge news. Um, This would have really suggested a big change in the top line analysis of what's going on in the Dem primary. But there were a couple other polls left to drop. And when they came out, they all showed what the sort of what everything else showed. showed. Biden out in the lead with this 30-ish point, you know, you know, position, um, Sanders coming in kind of second place. And then Warren, uh, I think in some of the polls trailing somewhat substantially in, in Echelon's polling, we had a poll come out. We are not obviously a DNC approved poll, but we also found, you know, Biden in the lead. We showed Warren doing um, reasonably well, but but did not show what Monmouth had showed. So the debate in polling land then became, how should Monmouth have handled this? And 
Patrick Murray, director of the Monmouth Poll, friend of the show, someone who's coming on the trend line, I believe, tomorrow oh, uh, for Sirius. That's XM exciting. to talk about this a little bit more. Um, put out a statement basically saying, look, it's clear we were an outlier. It's clear our poll does not look like everybody else's. This just ha- this happens sometimes. You get an outlier sometimes. Right. What are you going to do? We looked. We made sure. Did our sample look wonky? It did not. Did anything go wrong in our methodology? It did not. So we felt like you have to you have to put these numbers out there. It has to be otherwise you are hurting. You are saying, well, my poll doesn't look like the other polls, so I'm going to not release it. And then that just reinforces, you know, everybody to kind of make their polls look like each other. Yeah. And this was I saw Nate Silver tweeting about this, and I believe he was defining hurting a little differently. Hurting as in you go back and you like tweak your poll to make it look more like the others. But that's never been my understanding of what hurting is. My understanding of hurting is that it's just the you just sit on numbers that look wrong. Right. I mean, wrong in quotation marks. Right. Look off. Right. And then the other piece of this, too, is what happens to the coverage, because everybody was like, oh, my goodness, you know, three way. I mean, I think the New York Times had a headline about it. Right. That's probably where I mean, when I say everybody, I think I'm referring to the New York Times (laughs) only. But at, at any rate, that was driving a lot of the coverage. And. You know, we've seen this before. I think in 16, somebody released a study about this. I think it was 16 that polls that are outliers get more coverage than polls that are not. And so that's a little bit of what happened here. And then on top of that, you had people talking about the sample size, which I think is like 300 because it was a Democratic piece of a national survey that interviewed everybody. But all the qualifying polls are like that. They're all a sub sample of a national poll. So they're all three to 400 or so interviews. And so, you know, that's not what happened in this poll, per se, because all of these polls have shown, you know, have had smaller or, you know, not all of them, but most of them. I don't think there's a a poll in this list that has a thousand Democrats of a qualifying poll, to my knowledge. But I could be wrong, but I don't think that that's the case. So, you know, so so that's not what happened. But that also like made people like, look at this. It only has 300 people. And you could say that's probably too small for a qualifying poll to decide who's on the debate. You could definitely make that argument. <laughs> I think that would be a very reasonable argument to make. But that was not a knock on this particular poll. Yeah. And the there's also, I think, a very good Twitter thread from Sean Trendy from earlier this week during this kerfluffle about how the way we think of margin of error is also um, people assume, you know, you hear margin of error plus or minus 4%, plus or minus 5%. And technically, if we want to get extra mathy about it, that is the margin of error for a response that's like at the middle of the distribution. So like 50%. Where when you get out to smaller and smaller numbers, if a margin of error on a poll is plus or minus five, that does not mean if the poll shows you're at 2%, you might actually be seven. I mean, that's not, the further you get out toward the ends, either 99% or 1%, the smaller the like effective margin of error is. So, so which all of which is to say like for qualifying purposes, you can argue that the 300 sample size is not enough, but it's not as horrifically egregious as it seems when you think like, oh, my God, the margin of error on this is like plus or minus. What? Hang on. Right. Not to be confused with car talk statistician Marge, Marge Inovera. <laughs> Fabulous. So the, the only other thing to, to sort of note on this was then the subsequent debate about what should Monmouth have done. Right. And m- most people in political data Twitter land were of the mind that Monmouth handled this all correctly, that they were transparent about their methods, that they put the poll out, and then and and that's it is what it is. But 
John Anzalone, who fr- friend of the show uh, and uh, Democratic pollster, mm-hmm. who I believe is doing the polling for Biden. Yes. They were obviously not fans of this poll because it showed Biden sort of losing some momentum. Um, and he put out a tweet that said, quote, I appreciate this statement acknowledging Monmouth poll was an outlier, but disagree with, quote, in the end, we must put out the numbers we have. When our firm comes out of the field and we believe we have an outlier, we S can the numbers and redo the poll at our own expense, period. I don't think that's the right approach. I think if you get a poll that's you think might be an outlier, you can do another poll. But I don't think you just I think throwing out a poll because it looks weird. If your sample balance does not right. look weird, that's and you can't find anything methodologically you've done wrong. I don't think you throw out numbers because your gut tells you this looks off. Right. So I guess there's two questions, right? So one is, <clears throat> what is, you know, the polling outlet's responsibility to the public, especially if, in this case where they know that they're one of the few qualifying polls? And I don't think. I'm looking at the results here. I don't think that this change who qualified, not that this is really what we're talking about, because obviously Joe Biden qualified the debate. Like, I know this is what I'm looking at, but I don't think it changed anybody's qualification for no. the debate. So so in in, in in the long tail of sort of the where uh, where the other candidates were. So the implication of it is really just for the public narrative around what's happening at the at the top, which we all know is going to fluctuate a billion times. So do they have a real you know, obligation to the public to kind of change or not change the public narrative of the top three candidates for a, a couple days or a day and a half? I mean, that's just, I don't I don't feel that that's an obligation that a polling outlet has to the public, you know, just based on, you know, whether they think it's the right adjustment to the public conversation briefly. That, to me, that seems like not a good enough reason to kind of not include your, you know, include your poll, especially when you know your poll is part of this, the DNC qualifying piece. Um, anyway, so that's, you know, my my thought there. And then, you know, the issue is, is it, does the poll not seem right because the vote doesn't seem right or because there's something in the sampling? I mean, you can look at all the stuff underneath the surface and say, well, this doesn't make sense because normally this candidate has most of their support from this group, but here they've dropped this or, you know, or is it the sample? Like, what about it doesn't make sense? If it's simply like, I don't think this person is that this number, that to me is probably not enough of a reason to just say the poll is wrong. Maybe you're catching something early. You don't know until the other poll, the next batch of polls come out. So, you know, so that's why people who are doing internal polling, which none of this is, are, you know, ideally doing tracking and doing enough polling. So you are accounting for all this. You're accounting for these fluctuations. You're not over relying on one poll, which is going to be subject to, you know, error and fluctuation. Speaking of something that's not fluctuating a ton, we have the president's job approval. Disapproval has ticked up about two points over the last few weeks. Approval has maybe ticked down by a point. He's now at 42.8 percent approval on average, 54.1 percent disapproval on average. Um, But it's less about this job approval and more some of these general election matchups that are pretty grisly. Now, the Quinnipiac National Poll already had Trump That one had a job approval for him that was significantly lower than some of the other major national polls. You had USA Today Suffolk having him at 44 percent job approval, Emerson at 43, Economist YouGov 44, Reuters Ipsos 42. But then you had Quinnipiac down at 38. So Quinnipiac's already like 
That's a poll that was not great for Trump this month. Um, But these general election matchups are also pretty ugly. You have Biden leading Trump by 16, Sanders leading Trump by 14, Warren leading Trump by 12, Harris leading Trump by 11, Buttigieg leading Trump by nine. So all of these, Trump's number stays pretty consistent. It's either 40 39 or 38 percent in all of these matchups. But also, I mean, the Democratic side doesn't actually change a ton either between Biden, Sanders and Warren. This is a point I made on believe I made on Meet the Press this past weekend was Biden's really running on this electability. Choose me because I can win. And I even think there was a clip from Jill Biden Um, from a couple weeks ago where she sort of says, like, look, you may not love my husband on every issue, but like sometimes you just have to swallow it and deal because he's more electable. I did see that actually in my Twitter hiatus. Yes. (laughs) That did come by me. Yes. Um, And I feel like the Quinnipiac ballot matchups actually don't suggest Biden is significantly more electable than Sanders or Warren or Harris at this stage of the game, that's their all. I mean, the difference between plus 11 and plus 16, this far out, where it's all a little bit meaningless. Right. There's to a, me, does not actually suggest Joe Biden, like, has a strong electability argument he can be making. Right. But it's the perception that that's the reason to support Biden. Yes. And so is that driving the actual reality of someone of whether or not he or anyone else is electable or not electable? And, you know, can we even really determine who's electable Right now, you know, that's obviously a separate question. Um, So, you know, I think Pew, we don't have it in the script, but I just happened to see it this morning. Pew had something where they asked, you know, Democrats about how they felt about the candidates and why they supported them, whether it was part, you know, their policy or something about their personal characteristics or electability. And for Biden, people were divided between electability and personal characteristics. But for Sanders and Warren, it was more policy, something, you know, anyway, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there is this clear sense that that's something about electability. I mean, we released something while I was gone. I guess I didn't take a complete break, right? So there was something we released while I was gone um, about, you know, people who, you know, who did they think was going to win, which we've talked about before. What is that? What does that tell you? And you had a majority say that they thought the Democratic nominee was going to win. And obviously that was partisan, too. Um, and, you know, but independents thought were more likely to think that the Democratic nominee was going to win. But that wasn't a specific question about who. But the sense that the Democratic nominee would win is something that is like, obviously, things people are looking at. And that's separate from the actual general election ballot, which shows, you know, whoever they test is has a pretty good you know, pretty strong place currently, right? And that's mm-hmm. not even including, I know this is what your column is about. None of this is in the script, right? But your column this week was about, you know, uh, the Trump primary. Like, how do we view Trump's primary opponents and the fact that he has primary opponents? Is that something that is a sign of his weakness, his weakness with Republicans, his weakness in the general? Um, all of these are kind of part of the same conversation. You have a lot of different data points that suggest Trump is vulnerable not just the perception that, he, you know, the perception that he's vulnerable and also the actual reality that he's vulnerable. Yeah, I, I I just feel like the at this point in time, the general election numbers are so grisly for Trump, but also the Democratic contender has not yet been subject to 
whatever the the Trump campaign machine is going to bring. Like, it's hard for me to think of negative stuff about Trump that your median swing voter might be surprised by. So I feel like Trump in some ways is at his like maybe he's not at his floor. I mean, there's a long way to go till next election. And as we're going to talk about after the break, the economy could get worse. But I don't put a ton of stock in the general election numbers yet just because not only, oh, we don't have a Democratic nominee yet, but I also don't think the Democratic nominees have a brand image with maybe the exception of Biden and maybe the exception of Sanders, but not even really, that is strong enough in the minds of voters that has withstood a full frontal attack from the Trump forces. Right. And that'll that'll change things. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the economy and what voters are thinking about it. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google/certificates. All right, we're back. So now let's talk about the economy. Uh, while you were out, the yield curve inverted. Yeah, I missed that. Wild times. Wild <laughs> times. I was on Fox Business that morning uh, on like some mornings with Maria, but like yes. Dagan McDowell, who I love. She's like my spirit animal. She's so fantastic. She was guest hosting and the yield curve inverted and it was like the sirens go off everywhere. Like, you know, we've got like during the break, we've got CNBC pulled up and we're looking like everybody's hair's on fire. Like, no, oh, recession is coming. Um, for those who are not economists or huge nerds, all a yield curve inversion means is <laughs> Everyone that- Everyone clicks off. <laughs> yes. Is that like people would rather, um, you know, the the yields on bonds, like it's basically about how much do banks, uh, you know, how much is charged for the the privilege of like, you, you get interest on treasuries that are two versus 10 years and when, and those numbers tend to be different. And all of a sudden, like when they get the same or when they actually like, it, it becomes- uh, more expensive to borrow, uh, you know, in a different time, for whatever. Anyhow, I'm I'm boring everybody. The point is that this has been an indicator of recessions. Uh, it doesn't always predict it's a recession. long-term bonds see their returns fall below those of short-term bonds. Yes. So typically, you inversion. are getting more of a return if you say, put my money away for a longer period of time. Because people feel the short-term is more volatile. Yes. But instead, if it's like, Ooh, the suddenly like the longer term. Yeah. Anyhow, point being, it was bad. I mean, and it it and that coupled with some of the stuff that's been going on with trade, uh, all led to the markets having like a kind of a freak out two weeks. And so when you take a look at things like consumer confidence, um, the and and various polls about what people think about the economy. You find this sort of two-part story where people are actually feeling okay about how things are going in the economy at the moment. Um, Trump's job approval on the economy tends to be about eight points higher, eight to nine points higher than his job approval overall. 
Consumer Confidence Index, um, that uh, consumers' assessment of current day conditions improved in August. Um, the percentage who said that business conditions are good increased from about 40% to 42%. Um, the people believe the job market is is better. The majority now say jobs are plentiful. Uh, so consumer confidence in the short run is great. But it's when you get to that more medium long term that people start getting concerned. Um, when people start asking about the future, do you think that business conditions will be better six months from now? Those numbers have fallen. Do you think that the labor market will be as good uh, in the future that those numbers have fallen. And NBC Wall Street Journal asked people, quote, do you feel anxious and uncertain because the economy still feels rocky and unpredictable? So I worry. Um, in August of 2019, you had a majority of Americans who said yes to that. You had 56 percent who said they feel anxious and uncertain. Um, so 69 percent say they're satisfied with the situation today. But if we're thinking about the future, less so. So I think that's, you know, when people say, well, what will Trump's job approval look like if the economy collapses? I wonder how much is priced into his job approval, this sense of like, I may like things now, but I don't feel like the future is going to be great. Yeah, I mean, so I guess there's also asking about the economy is is not just one question, right? Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of different questions. You're asking about how people feel about the economy, you know, how they feel about the economy in the future, how they feel about their own economy, how mm -hmm. they feel about what Trump has been doing on the economy and what that means and who he who they think he's helping or hurting, which is obviously influenced by events, but it's also influenced by just how your views of who the party helps and doesn't help um, and where they think the trajectory is going and, and how important, lastly, that is to what they're thinking about politics. Right. We talked about the conflicted, the navigator conflicted analysis a couple Weeks ago where, um, you know, folks who gave Trump a positive rating on the economy but negative ratings on the, on him overall said that the economy was not going to necessarily be, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're going to be looking at other things. The economy is not how they're, they're going to be voting. They'll be thinking about other stuff when it comes to Trump. So, um, you know, so all of these things are important in terms of how we think about the economy and what it means. And we, you know – should not expect that voters will have as volatile of a view toward the economy as kind of the economic indicators themselves might be, too, because the, the you know, public opinion may be it may be a leading indicator of the economy, maybe a trailing indicator of the economy. I think it's going to depend on what audiences we're talking about. So Quinnipiac, for example, this made a lot of news. Again, potentially, we don't know, an example of a poll you know, we'll see from future polls, is this a, is this an early indicator of something or is this a poll that got a lot of news that then we'll see reversion to the mean and, you know, in, in future work. But um, it showed pretty pessimistic views toward the economy. You had, you know, more people saying that the economy was getting uh, worse than than we've seen in past Quinnipiac polls where they've asked the same question. You see more people a record high saying that they think Trump's policies are hurting the nation's economy. Um uh, th that's that's new. So you have, you know, 37 percent who say that the economy is getting worse. That's a plurality. It's not a, you know, a huge number, but it's a plurality and it's the highest that Quinnipiac has had in in the Trump presidency. Um, 
And uh, you have more people say that, you know, the economy is, you know, doing not so good or poor or think that, you know, Trump is, is has somehow had some kind of negative uh, effect on it. That's all from Quinnipiac. They have multiple questions on it. And and uh, and that's something that seems to, you know, be salient for folks. Um, CBS uh, had something I just saw where uh, this is from the past couple of days where um, you had a. Uh, 42% feel that Trump's policies are responsible for the current state of the economy. That's not to say that could be people think that could be good or bad, but you have 42% say a great deal and some division on who they think it's helping or hurting. You know, has it generally, uh, you know, brought, you know, asked a variety of different components of impact. Do you think the policies of the Trump administration brought manufacturing jobs to the U.S.? Slight Majority, 53% say no. Helped minority communities economically. Majority say no. Helped non-minority communities economically. There it's evenly divided, 49-51. Rural uh, communities, majority say no. Helped Wall Street, clear majority say yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Helped small businesses, slight majority say no. Helped labor unions, clear majority say no. So – you know, would you – you might have numbers like that in any Republican administration – but given that this is like the main thing yeah, that people point at, as like why Trump, um, you know, for for folks who, you know, who who might otherwise not like him, um, you know, you, you see some weaknesses. And then the last thing uh, to mention is uh, Morning Consul asked this question. And I think it's hard to like ask people to to project out like this. But uh, it says, you know, if the question is. It, it what you know would you hold Trump accountable for how responsible would you hold him if there was an economic recession? So you're asking people to like for basically two hypotheticals like if there's a recession, what will you then how will you then feel yeah. about Trump? Like it, it's you know it's not it's a question we want to know the answer to, but it's not necessarily a question that people can respond easily. But it's still I think important that among people who said they voted for Trump, um, you know, almost half say they might at least partially. Res- might find him partially responsible. And this is why I, in my, not my most recent column for the examiner, but the one before that I wrote, and this was like, I filed this like a day or two after the whole yield curve inversion freak out, um, that Trump is, his whole MO is he always finds someone else, an external villain that he can like blame for when things go wrong, right? That prior to the 2016 election, he was, it's rigged, it's rigged, like they're coming, you know, which then, ironically, after the election, that whole conversation got turned on its head because right. he actually won. Right. Um, but that he's very good at like sort of saying like, if things go well, it's my I did it. But if I it goes, alone can fix it. But if if it went badly, it's someone else. And he's already setting up the three like fall guys for if the economy gets bad. That's why you, you get that tweet that's like, who's bigger enemy, the Fed or Xi Jinping? Like, that's because those are two of the three people I wrote about in my column as, like, he's setting them up to be like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault the economy's bad. China's being a jerk. Are they going to be like those side-by-side tweets? Kristen's column, Trump's tweets. (laughs) No. Okay. I'm telling you, I I can't go into further detail, but within the next three to six months, I have a very strong feeling that I am going to get Twitter mentioned like by the president. Cool. I just think if I'm going on television in places where he might see me and I'm talking about polls, 
in a way that is honest. He is not going to potentially like that all the time. And he has taken to started tweeting more aggressively about when he sees people on TV saying things about polls he doesn't like. Yeah. So I'm just flagging that now. You can say you heard it here. The pollsters episode, August 29th. Kristen said, this is coming one day, one day that at real Donald Trump tweet is going to head my way and mess up my morning. It's going to be a thing that happens. I won't let it mess up my morning too bad. Um, you could be like bed bug guy and be like, this is endlessly entertaining. <laughs> this is the greatest day I've ever had. I like how Brett Stevens is now bed bug guy. Is no, that what you mean? David, the guy who wrote Oh, the, the guy who called him bed bug guy. Yeah. Or a bed yes, bug. Because he like, he's like, this is. This is fantastic. It's a distraction, but it's been incredibly fun. <laughs> I just think who you're... else wants to ask me how fun, much fun I'm having? <laughs> I'm having tons of fun. <laughs> the last thing we'll just say on this is the qu- other question is how much does the economy matter? So the economy may be Trump's number one, maybe the thing where his job approval is best. And when you look at a lot of these models, you know, the Alan Abramowitz time for change model or, you know, any of these like fundamentals models. GDP growth in the second quarter of a re-election year. Like, that's a thing that gets factored in, right? But if the economy is doing well and voters kind of as a result aren't thinking about it as much because they're thinking about other things, does it actually have as much of an impact? Or do you need to, like, lessen the impact of the economy in the model versus if the economy is terrible, it's clearly going to be top of mind for people and maybe really driving their views. So, that's something for the for the political science folks out there. How do you think about fundamentals models in terms of the weight you should give to the economy? And does that shift if the economy is good versus bad? Right. Because Gallup has shown and the, their last asking, I think, is July of this year. And I don't think we talked about it at the time, but the economy is, you know, incredibly low as a, it, in people's self-report of what they think the most important mm-hmm. problem is. Like, it's just incredibly low. It. It, it pretty much hasn't been this low other than other sort of 2019 months where it's in this kind of 12 to 14 percent. And, you know, that's that's unusual for the economy to be so low. So does that change, you know, or does it not change? Does it is that stay low or are other issues like this sense that the government is dysfunctional and that we're divided? Is that are those things just so high yeah. that they will that it, it'll be very hard for something to overtake it unless we have you know something? It's also very serious. Not necessarily the case that. Just because something's not a problem doesn't mean it's not a voting issue. So you may think the economy is great. Therefore, you don't think it's the country's most important problem, but it still may be the most important factor in your vote. So that's one of the limitations of that question. And it's very hard to get people to unpack what's the most important issue. Like that question is so fraught with. I mean, I don't hate it. We need it, you know, but it's just it's so hard. Like, you know, how many things you list. What's How many can qu- people choose? Yes. How do you frame it? So, yes. But, right, you have vague, you know, questions, but vague answer categories, but you don't know what specific piece or do you give them like some kind of hook or anchor as to whether it's mm-hmm. what side of the issue? Anyway, yeah. So the question is always complicated. At the same time, I mean, you know, in addition to that, even if most important problem was one for one with it's my top voting issue, which it's not, as you mm-hmm. as you say, um, Still, you know, in a close election, as all these election contests are, you know, you need, you know, it may be it may be determinative in in a state or two in a battleground state where this really matters. Yeah. Well, let's should we take a break? 
All right, we'll take a quick break <laughs> and we'll come and back. We'll come back. Yes. Talking about back to school. Yes. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. All right, we're back. So it's back to school time. Margie, are your kids excited? Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, they are excited. So while they have very different attitudes towards school and different attitudes toward back to school and a different sense of like, how many days away is that? And what do I need? Like my seven-year-old is very clear on what that means. My four-year-old is like, is that today? I know you're. she's, she's the, very focused on list making. Yes. Yeah, so so she, I assume there's... so. Everybody has jet lag in my house, which is to- tons of fun. And so, you know, normally if you have jet lag and you have kids, you're like, I'm up early and I'm going to conquer the world before anybody gets up. But when your kids have jet lag, they're like, hey, here are 400 crazy things I would like you to do when it's dark out. And you're like, uh, cool. <laughs> so some of those things have been like, you know, we need new backpacks. Like, here's my list of can we just like surf the Internet for school supplies? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> like, OK. I'm like, you don't need any school supplies. They give you all the supplies you need. But there's this love of like a new fresh set of pencils or at least for my seven year old. I feel that she's she is correct. Your daughter yes. and I have extremely have similar views yes. on like list making, paper organizing, and pens. papers, pens, erasers, all of it. Yep. You know, and the four year old is like, you know, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to show everybody like my new socks and I want to take karate <laughs> and, you know, like I mean, they have like a completely different sense of like what the year holds in store for them. <laughs> it's completely different. But yeah, it's exciting. It's good. Well, it's according to a new study from Deloitte, back to school spending is going to remain relatively flat, but the share of it being spent online will increase. They expect total spending to be five hundred and nineteen dollars per student. Is that over the course of the year? And also how? I have questions. What are they including in this? I mean, does that seem right to you? Maybe it includes computers for and cell phones for older kids. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, or does it include clothes? It does say electronic gadgets, something included in this. And I remember buying my TI 83 or 85, whatever it was, fabulous, awesome graphing calculator of the gods in high school. And it right. was so cool. And you could play games on it which we definitely were not doing. Definitely not doing. Uh, and you that games on your calculator? <gasps> wow. Yes. This is a very, like, it's a very, like, a specific 
window millennial window mm. but there were there were ga- there's a game called like drug wars where you it was like a simulated like the price of different drugs i do remember that but i think that was on somebody's phone i didn't know that was on a calculator yeah okay. yeah 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 there were there was there was like snake i think was one of the things you could play on your calculator yeah. there was it was a lot i also just enjoyed typing in random nonsense equations to see what kind of kooky graph it would output graphing calculators were the best huh um so i can see if you added that in like i think that was like a hundred bucks and i was like this is the most expensive thing Thing i'll ever own i'll ever own (laughs) oh my gosh if i lose this i'm going to be like my parents are going to kick me out of the house um so i guess yeah they're counting electronics in here um Price is, according to this report, price is the predominant driver. Um, and mass merchants retain their top spot. Um, online-only dollar stores, specialty retailers, and off-price rounding out the top five. Off-price. Is there, like, a Staples outlet? I would have a lot no. of fun in, like, a Staples outlet. I don't outlet. think so. I would have a lot of fun there. That would combine multiple interests of mine, <laughs> outlets and school supplies. Right. Um, and then back to school shopping peaks in midsummer. It is peaking late July, early August. So according to this, if you're just now buying your school supplies, you're a little late to the I'm game. Late. But I mean, there's I no think, judgment here on I the think bolsters. It's, I no think, judgment I think it's because schools start earlier. School in Florida starts the first week in August when I grew up. Like really, yeah. yeah. I mean, but then was, you get out. Like I, my graduation day was like May second or something like that. So it it's just very. I mean, it used to be, you know, when I was a young baby pollster, that the end of August was not when you wanted to poll because people were out, mm-hmm. and that is less true now. Where you're like, well, when do schools get back in in your state or your town? We have to look because if it's the middle of August, then maybe you can pull in the end of August. Yeah. So. And online polls, people are more apt to do them kind of from anywhere. Yes, and- it just depends. Anyway, these are all our calculations. So back to school. It, it, in Maryland, it is after Labor Day. So where I live in Maryland, it is very clear. It was a big thing. It is happening after Labor Day. So that so we're wringing the last few days out of the summer in our neighborhood. The other poll we have in this section is from newscentermain.com. <laughs> Don't know who the sample is. The question is, how did you feel on your first day back to school Are when they you like, were a kid? Just people from the rest of the country that go to Maine over the summer <laughs> that answered this poll. That sounds lovely. Maine is one of the like seven states I've never been to. Oh, really? Maine, the Dakotas, Idaho, Nebraska, and Wyoming, Vermont. Oh, nope, been to Wyoming. In fact, it was in Wyoming a couple weeks ago and was right across the border from Idaho. And I should have just driven over, like, you bought abs- a coffee and checked it off the list. Yeah, I have three states left, and some of them so North Dakota, Wyoming, and Idaho. I've also That's never it. stayed overnight in Delaware or Missouri, so I'm unclear if those Whoa. count. I have. Engaged in business and commerce there, so I think it counts, but I've never stayed overnight in those states. Having a credit card registered in Delaware is not. <laughs> it's not or, or, I or did you go in the racetrack? I don't have like a shell corporation. <laughs> no, no. I've been. To, I've stopped at the Starbucks. Ah, uh, yes. Along a 95. Lovely, it's a lovely renovated Delaware. And I spoke at the Biden Center at the University of Delaware. My, my gal Val, his sister Valerie, who we were fellows at the Institute of Politics ah. together, she's she is so fabulous. Right, we were I doing so well. So we were so tight. We were like I know. we were like ready. 
Ready to go. Now okay. we're rambling. All right. So this poll, how did you feel on your first day back to school? Excited, nervous, or I wished summer was longer? Majority, 53% said, I wish summer was longer. 31% said excited. 16% said nervous. I would have picked excited. I, I think I would school have, coming yeah, back. I would have picked excited, I too. Yeah. I'm sure most of our listeners are dorks, Yeah, too. I was excited. In the best possible way. Yeah. I think uh, my oldest is excited, and I think my youngest... It's probably going to be in that wish summer was – I mean, he's the type who just, like, wears shorts until, like, February because he's just, you know, just gets sad in the morning. Then it's the winter, you know? He just really – Well, winter is sad and terrible. But we've got <laughs> fall now. Fall's the best. We'll surely discuss pumpkin spice here very soon. That, Did I see something, like – We always do pumpkin spice polling, and it's out. It's it out. It is pumpkin spice time right now. And so I saw we something cover this else that was pretty horrific, like a honey – Tea. Did somebody say like they saw a honey tea, honey lime jalapeno latte? Oh, no, that was me. Was that you? I was in Des Moines at a coffee oh, shop yes. and it was amazing. I saw that sign. I was like, <laughs> what in what fresh hell is that flavor? Oh, I forgot that it was you. It was, was me. Like, it, it was Des Moines, a coffee shop there called Scenic Route, and it was lovely. Sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> You better hope that the people listening to that, they're not, the, they weren't going to caucus for, uh, for any of my candidates. For any of your candidates. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think that we can, you know, I can allow to my own opinions about coffee. That's surely. True. You're, you're not speaking <laughs> on behalf of the campaign. Surely, surely I can have my own private thoughts about, <laughs> my own somewhat unprivate thoughts about coffee. So All right. what do we learn? Um, Welcome back our, to the pollsters and welcome back to school. And then what's on the trend line this week? Uh, trend line this week, going to talk a little bit about the whole Monmouth poll kerfluffle. We're going to actually yeah. talk to Patrick Murray about That's good. his thoughts. And then a new study has he come out. He was at the, the Iowa State Fair, too. So you should ask him about I that. I 100% will. Yeah. And then there's a new study that has come out about persuasion and the value of using moral arguments versus just like data and facts and figures. Mm. Um, so I'm going to interview the author of that study and find out kind of how they came to their conclusions. What's and the answer? We'll, we'll have to see. I mean, the answer is that, yes, making moral arguments tends to be more persuasive than giving the numbers, but I kind of want to pick at that a little bit, I, you right. know, and see like what are the limitations of that? Are there particular people for whom that's true? Are there particular types of moral arguments that work better than others? Um, or types of facts. Some facts are easier to understand than others. Yeah. And is it p perhaps because nowadays people just don't trust facts or they think facts are, you know, whatever. So we'll dig into that on the trend line. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks everybody. And oh, thanks to the folks who wrote uh, reviews recently. Keep up the good work. We had one review that said that we were light but detailed. And I was like, that's great. I'll I accept it. I, want I'll the, I almost it. want that on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that is, sounds like a good description. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.